You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Satan, your kingdom must come down. Satan, your kingdom must come down. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Hi everybody, this is Danny Anderson once again welcoming you to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. Uh, in our, As normal for us, we're jumping backwards all the time between politics and pop culture. Today we're landing on another pop culture, but obviously we'll probably still be talking some politics as well because it's my show. So, um, But uh, joining me today uh, are two alums of the show now. Um, in the studio here with me here at Mount Aloysius College is uh, my colleague and friend Nathan McGee. Nathan, uh, how's it going today? Going good. Great. Nathan and I were out late last night watching uh, the movie that we're about to talk about here. So uh, if we're a little groggy, uh, we're, we're, we're very old. And so uh, <laughs> so bear with, bear with us. We're not as young as we used to be. Um, and uh, joining Nathan and I is the, the guy who came up with the idea for this episode. Uh, back once again for the show is Jordan Poss. How's it going, Jordan? Good. How are you doing? Good, good. Jordan, you contacted me I was a few months ago uh, yeah. because you just read the book uh, and you had some strong opinions about the book and wanted to do an episode about it. And I said, well, let's wait till the movie comes out because I don't have yeah. time to read anything. But um. <laughs> yeah, fortunately, I've mellowed a little bit since like the immediate aftermath of the book. Um, but I wanted to say really quick before we even get into it, um, I do like things. <laughs> I feel like I feel like every time I come on. I'm complaining about something, whether it's, you know, like Jack chick or, or Christmas shoes. So like, like before I have to say anything about, and I actually liked the movie ready player one a lot more than the book. I mean, I felt like it was a big improvement in a lot of ways, but before I say anything about, Ready Player One. I, I I do like some stuff. So, uh, <laughs> don't don't judge me by my uh, sectarian review presence. <laughs> you fit right in here. It's okay. Don't worry about it. Um, the more you rant, the less I have to. So that, that's the way <laughs> I look at it. Um, yeah. And so Jordan, uh, you're you've kind of moved around. Tell us where you are now again. Uh, you're pro- uh, professionally. At, yeah, I can't remember. Maybe I maybe I mentioned this when we did the the Christmas episode. I can't remember. I am now a full time instructor of history at uh, Piedmont Technical College in Greenwood, South Carolina. Okay. Um. So I did four years in adjunct limbo at a couple of other institutions, and I'm now uh, gloriously full time and recording from an office as opposed <laughs> to uh, my, my kitchen table. Yeah. How far we've come. Our first episode that I recorded with you was our Trumpism episode from like. Three yeah. years ago, and you were doing it from a McDonald's. And yeah. <laughs> it was like audio nightmare for me. And, oh, yeah. And you actually. So, um, yeah. So, yeah. How far we've come. It's great to track mm-hmm. progress in that way. So, uh, well, let's. It, it's definitely, it's definitely thanks to sectarian review. That's the. <laughs> oh, yeah. We'll, we'll do correlation instead of causation. Oh, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure that anybody who appears on this show automatically gets a really awesome job. So, uh, if you have any ideas for shows and you need a, a career boost, give me a call and, uh, and I'll help you out. Um, so, and thanks again, guys, for recording in the morning. Uh, the yeah. listeners may or may not care. I always talk about James K.A. Smith on this show. And tonight he's actually uh, giving a lecture in uh, Lancaster, which is a couple, three hours away from me. And so I want to leave a little early this afternoon <laughs> to go make that uh, that lecture with James K.A. Smith. 
at which I will meet Neil Gussman, who's also alum from uh, from Very the cool. show. So uh, Neil and I will meet up at the, for, for the first time. So um, so yeah, we're recording this kind of early after Nathan and I have been up all, until like midnight watching the movie, which I know <laughs> I used to go to midnight movies, right? But uh, those days are long gone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Ready Player One is the movie that we're both talking about, or all three of us are talking about here, and. Uh, so I have not read the book. Uh, I've only seen the movie. So I want, if you guys could talk a little bit about the adaptation, like what's different about the book or, and that what didn't make it into the movie or what's added to the movie that wasn't in the book. Maybe we can start with Nathan. And then uh, if you want to add anything to that, Jordan, you can. Sure. Just jump in, Jordan, if I get anything wrong. But the <laughs> I've actually read the book three times. I've read it. I read it shortly after it was released, um, probably 20 late 2011 2012 i read it a couple of years later and then i in preparation for this i read it again a couple of weeks ago so i've read it three times um probably the big difference in the book between the the overall strokes i think are pretty much there uh Mm -hmm. the way the the competition unfolds is a little differently um so they're after the three keys to get the easter egg um, I, I suppose it goes without saying that there will be plenty oh, yeah. of spoilers. I, I uh, assume if someone's yeah, listening know. to a podcast about the movie, they're going to expect think, that. But, uh, there's your spoiler warning. <laughs> um, but the uh, the way it unfolds is is very different. Um, the the contests themselves are uh, what a, a little more um, a, a less big budget action. Um, with exception of maybe the, the the very last one, they tend to be a little more personal. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of video games, uh, because it really is about video games more than I, I think even more so than pop culture or you know yeah. video games place in within pop culture and its importance within pop culture, and uh, you really don't see that a lot in the movie until the very last challenge where they're playing the old Atari. But I think mm-hmm. almost every one of the challenges. Uh, throughout the movie are involve video games, uh, especially classic video games. Um, I'm trying to think, I'd say those are the, the big differences. Um, some of the character relationships, they changed. Uh, obviously they wanted to play up the romance between Artemis and Parseval or Wade and Samantha that uh, those two characters do not meet in the book in real life until the very, very end of it. Mm. Uh, so their mm. entire relationship is online, which is kind of interesting in and of itself. And I think has something about, uh, online romance, yeah. um, and catfishing, uh, and it's referenced <laughs> yeah. in the movie, uh, but, yeah. uh, then, you know, it just kind of moves away from it because they actually meet in person and, Oh, she's a beautiful young woman. So, uh, everything's okay. Yeah. Um, and, uh, that role played by Olivia cook, who I absolutely adore, and whatever criticisms you may have of this film or the book, uh, I I think she's wonderful, and I don't. I thought she was great in the movie, and I think she's great. Oh, in everything I think she does. Yeah. But, uh, so yeah, yeah, I think she, she made she made Artemis bearable for me. <laughs> um, yeah, we. Yeah, you you can go on, but yeah, I'm I'm agreeing that she she was very very good, and um, I I like the I like what they did with her character in the movie. I I I think the big difference between her character in the movie and in the book was in the book it. There's a conversation between Wade and Artemis about what they would do with the money, um, or if they won. And that, that makes its way into the movie a little bit. And Wade talks about, I'm going to get a big mansion and, you know, I'm going to buy all this stuff. And that, he elaborates on that in the book. But her point of view, 
was I'm going to try to use my half a trillion dollars to save the planet. Yeah. Um, our planet is dying. There is widespread poverty. I will now be the richest person on planet Earth, and I will have the means to try to help battle widespread poverty with my with my riches. And that is not present in the film mm. at all. Um, no. You know, she just essentially says, I'm fighting back against this. You know, they killed my dad, and so I'm angry. But there's no conversation about, what, you know, what what she wants to do with the money if she if and when she wins. Yeah, there's some interesting economics in this movie that uh, we can get to at some point. But yeah, that, that's definitely one of them. And you told me that The Shining, there's a pretty extended <laughs> homage to The Shining in the movie, which, of course, I love. Uh, that's oh, one dinner. of my favorite movies, right? And so uh, I guess I'm a sucker for that in that moment of nostalgia in this movie. Uh, and that's not that's much different in the book. The, the, there are two... If I remember correctly, there are two prolonged film sequences in the book. It's War Games and uh, Holy Grail, Monty Python. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I don't even know if The Shining is referenced in the book. It, it, it very well may be. They, they make reference to Stephen King, so it, it makes sense. Yeah. Um, and obviously Kubrick is a, a pretty big influence on the, the people they're referencing, yeah. um, even mm-hmm. if there's not a lot of Kubrick references in the book itself. So it, it makes sense. Yeah. 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 Jordan, uh, anything you want to add to that uh, transition or summary from the transition? Um, not right off the top of my head. I mean, like, I think um, you mentioned it a second ago that they introduced Samantha slash Artemis earlier in the movie. And I think that was a wise move. Um, and we can talk about some of the implications that has for the way the book and the movie handle like human relationships. I feel like the movie in a very Spielberg-y, schmaltzy way, kind of affirmed community and teamwork in a way that I don't think the, the book really did. Um, we could maybe say more about that later. But, uh, yeah, the, a, lot of the, a lot of the changes from the book to the movie were kind of superficial, and I, I think largely related to making the thing work visually. Mm-hmm. Um, like, The Shining is so, like, instantly recognizable. I think that second challenge that it replaced in the book was when he has to play Zork. Um, okay. Where he has to actually like walk through Zork on like the Zork planet, okay. uh, which was one of the two pop culture references in the book that I really, really dug because I like those old text games. Um, sort of like playing a very simple – it's sort of like playing a novel, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, that I don't know how they would have made that like work for the movie though. And furthermore, that by moving it into all of them going into The Shining, that again emphasized that teamwork and team building. So most of the changes are just stuff like that. and. Um, the 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 first challenge is finding this like dungeons dungeons and Jack, dragons level recreation mm. or whatever on like the the school planet which they drop like one mention of ludus the school planet yeah. in the movie um otherwise i mean like the first quarter of the book is like you know what all the other students in ferris bueller are doing while he's out driving a ferrari you know <laughs> um uh Making the references is infectious. Uh, so he, you know, that that challenge of trying to find this Dungeons and Dragons lair is replaced with the race that's at the beginning of the movie, and that's kind of a excuse for some super over the top action. But again, that works visually. We're trying to, I mean, es- essentially what you would have gotten with a literal film adaptation of the first challenge is watching somebody use google earth to find a hill on a planet you know <laughs> yeah so a lot of the changes are i, I think make a lot of they, they don't alter the story substantially 
um, but they make it work visually, which is Spielberg's strong suit. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. Well, and I trust uh, both these guys have, I think, uh, legitimacy in, in, in analyzing the story. I mean, Nathan's a, a, a theater professor, right? So you are immersed in storytelling. And Jordan is not only a historian, you're a novelist. And so you actually uh, sort of craft stories. And um, feel free to plug anything you want on the show, by the way. Um, you have Jordan's got a couple of awesome books out um, and uh, one in the works, right? So, uh, uh, yes, I'm, I'm working. I'm I'm. When I'm not grading essays, I'm revising one that I hope to get out this summer. <laughs> so. yeah. yeah, well, I'll put a link to Jordan's uh, uh, author page on the, on the oh. show notes for this one. So, um, yeah, you should check him out. The the No Snakes in Ireland I read, that was awesome. So, um, oh, thanks. Like so, thanks. I appreciate uh, it. Um, and uh, so, but going back to this uh, uh, the school planet thing, I think that was that's interesting because mm-hmm. this movie, all science fiction – is kind of trying to extrapolate out where we are now. And with this kind of um, rethinking what education is, um, you see this push for online education and, and this kind of virtual schoolhouse that everyone just goes and sits in uh, is yeah. seems weirdly plausible to me. And, and it's not really in the movie though. And so when you guys are describing it, it's actually uh, uh, it seems like an interesting thought experiment. Yeah. Well, I had a meeting with a textbook representative yesterday, and I mean, they were emphasizing like, oh, you know, we're, we're taking our company digital first. And look, here's the app you can use. And the textbook is all on there. But the textbook is like, frankly, secondary or even tertiary to yeah. like all the interactive stuff now. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's, you know, I, to, to me, the the Ludus planet, Ludus is Latin for school or training camp, you know, like that's. Uh, a, a gladiator trained at a Ludus, right? Ah, nice. Um, yeah, which, which again, that that kind of tickled a part of my brain that um, <laughs> that I that I didn't mind, but the rest of the book kind of annoyed me. But the uh, <laughs> the book the book's uh, school planet is is kind of like a super exaggerated VR version of that, which um, I, I get it, but I mean, we, we I don't think you'd need the full VR experience for that because I mean, what what my what I see my students doing all the time anyway is like I don't know that they ever check what I put for them online on even a computer. They're just looking at their phone. Yeah. So I don't I don't know. That's that's kind of a minor point, but it is um Yeah. I, I agree that that was one of the more the the underlying idea was one of the more plausible parts of uh, Ready Player One. But again, it's it's it, he doesn't Klein the author doesn't really do anything with it. Yeah. Um. At, at least. I, I could see a Ray Bradbury like taking that idea and like running with it, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, the way, Ra- you know, for so for instance, Ra- Bradbury's everybody talks about censorship with Fahrenheit 451, but it's really more about the effects of TV mm. on on he- people. I mean, he was Neil Postman 30 years earlier. Yeah. Um, so I would I would love to see what Br- Bradbury would have made of something more like this. But the 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 concepts in the book are really more in service of, again, just piling on the references and 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 the 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 illusions and 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 that's the the critique i've heard of it is that it's like uh, well and I'll, I'll put some links to some uh some reviews of the movie that really are kind of reviews of the source material. Um, yeah. and, and that's the uh the the critique of the source material is that it's just sort of like masturbatory kind of okay. uh, <laughs> pop culture referencing all the time. But. Okay. I was trying to avoid that word. I'm glad you used it first. <laughs> okay. um, I, I don't think that'll give us an explicit tag. So it's okay. Uh, no. Nathan, you were going to say something about the school thing. I think. 
Oh, I. One of the things that I find interesting about the book is the dystopia that he creates. I think feels very grounded in the world that we're in today. Yeah. Um, unlike some other dystopias that you read that seem very. Okay, you know, this is pretty far-fetched for us to get to the Hunger Games world. But, <laughs> you know, a world in which people are just living digitally and not connecting with one another, and we're going to school online, and all of our commerce and interaction is happening essentially on the Internet. I, I mean, that's kind of where we are at in a lot of ways, and they're just adding that VR on top of it. Now, I agree with Jordan. He doesn't he, – he puts a lot of these ideas in the book – and some of them make their way into the movie. It's not what the book is about. Those ideas are there to serve this grander, what I call, I think it's just an adventure story. Yeah. Um, that, that really is an homage to, you know, the, the adventure movies of the seventies and eighties that he's, he is referencing throughout. But, but those ideas are plausible. And I mean, this, the world that they describe does not feel like a world that is impossible for it us to become yeah mm -hmm. yeah it really does and, and to, the, to the point where in the movie and i don't know if this is what it looks like in the book the main character lives in a trailer park that is like a hyper trailer park it's like trailers yeah. like literally stacked on top of each other like they call them mm -hmm. stacks right and so um uh it's almost like skyscraper uh formations but made of trailers right and so and yeah. but it doesn't no there's no really kind of a a social movement to rectify this kind of utter poverty uh, because everyone's happy in the game, right? Their, their real life, their, whatever they value takes place in this virtual world. Right. And so I think yeah. that's one thing about the movie that I'm really kind of struggling with, because I'm not sure where the movie stands on those kinds of questions. And it's almost like it's so celebratory of the virtual world yeah. uh, it, on one hand, but it also is making, I think an implicit claim, at least that our emphasis on this virtual world is built on the ruins of a real world. Uh, and so I think that that's, uh, you know, something we can get to, uh, in a little bit here. But, um, and one thing that I know, and you guys, I think it was when Nathan was talking about playing games in the game, like that's very, you're, so you're going into a video game to play another yeah. video game, right? Mm -hmm. And, uh, <laughs> and that reminds me, there was an onion article several years ago about uh, a new game called World of World of Warcraft. And so <laughs> you watch, you play a guy who's sitting at a computer playing World of Warcraft. And, uh, <laughs> and I think, yeah, this, it, that, as absurd as that was, that's what they're doing in this movie, essentially, yeah. right? <laughs> so, yeah, that's one of the things that I, I just kept, as, as I read the book, and fortunately they don't hammer on this in the movie, but as I read the book, I just kept stepping back and being like, you know, he talks about going into these virtual environments where it's somebody's basement and, you know, there's shelves with DVDs and VHS tapes on them and, you know, he always mentions gaming supplements, you know, and like all the little like booklets and things like that. And they're all recreations of things that already exist in this virtual environment. It's like somebody had to program all of that. Yeah. And, and I mean, every, every minor accessory that you could possibly like, they don't mention this one, but I mean, let, let's say he wanted, let's say he wanted, you know, the explosive pin from Goldeneye. Yeah. I mean, that would probably be available in there somewhere, but somebody would have had to like, you know, recreate the thing and like input it and, you know, program it. And there's, I'm, I'm, it, it struck me because I'm not usually prone to this kind of like internet nerd nitpicking, mm -hmm. but the logistics of that don't make sense to me. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, again, it's not like a lot of, 
thought was put into it. It's sort of like, okay, if this exists, if I can exist in this basement in real life, there's a virtual version of it. Yeah. But I don't know. I feel like I'm, I, I've, I've kind of lost my way here, but it, well, it, well, one thing that stood out to me is that you see all this world building in Oasis, yeah. which is the name of the, the program that everybody lives in. Um, and you don't really, you never see the programmers. You never see the right. labor, I guess, that goes into to creating that. It just sort of is this magical thing that comes out of the head of yeah. uh, of uh, what's his face Halliday, Halliday uh, the guy who uh, created the, the the virtual world, played by Mark Rylance in this movie. Um, and he's, he's really good. What a great performance! Good. What a great performance that is, yeah. actually. Um, and well, <laughs> well, that that's kind of a tension in the. Well, it's not even a tension in the book because for it to be a tension, you have to be aware of it, and I don't think Klein was. There's a lot of there's a lot of talk in the book about how, you know, we've got to prevent IOI, this evil corporation, from taking over the Oasis. Yeah. But who is running the Oasis if not Halliday's corporation? Right. <laughs> but we, we never learn anything about that corporation. Again, it just kind of exists like it's this independent, free-floating thing out there that you can just access any time. And um, Mike Nelson of Mystery Science Theater fame, yeah. to establish my nerd cred, uh, <laughs> pointed out that in the book – He's always noting, Wade is always noting that whenever he connects, there's no lag yeah. or no interference with the signal because it's so good. But we never get a hint that that is ever a problem anywhere because yeah. anybody who gets into the Oasis is perfectly plugged in all the time. Yeah. Um, and that's got to be maintained by somebody. Yeah. But IOI is evil and whoever runs the Oasis is not. Yeah. Which, again, it, it would, would be okay you, if you explored that. But instead, the rhetoric is entirely about corporations are evil. We need to keep up the Oasis, you know, open source or whatever. Again, without thinking about the logistics of, you know, the fact that somebody is running this thing. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's hold off on the, the, I guess those yeah. economic readings because I would definitely <laughs> want to get there. I just want to set it up with the conversation that's been going on about it. And so I, when Jordan, you know, gave me the, or, you know, suggested the, the show, I started reading all the, the kind of, you know, liberal mainstream, uh, your, your voxes and your slates and all that sort of thing. And they're all trashing the movie even before it comes out. Um, <laughs> basically because it's based on this book, right? And so it, the history of the, I guess the reception history of this book is interesting to consider. Uh, when it came out in 2011, 12, mm-hmm. um, 2011. uh, there's this, it's, acclaim. People love it, right? Because of the, the nostalgia factor. And then, um, the narrative that I've, you know, picked up from, you know, reading the kind of liberal ma- mainstream media sphere is, um, uh, Gamergate happens, right? And then, uh, there's all this controversy about geek culture and patriarchal control of, of such. And then the writer of this book, Klein, writes another book, and I can't remember the name of it. Armada. Uh, thank you. Yeah. And it gets to utterly trashed in the wake of Gamergate because it's tone deaf, essentially. And then people retroactively apply that reading to Ready Player One. And so Ready Player One is suddenly, um, at, you know, verboten right <laughs> in the, from in this perspective, at least. And so and all this is taking place in you know, seven years of real time. I mean, this is all within seven years. This book has been through all of this mill. And, uh, and, and, and so when the movie comes out, all of the conversation that I've seen about it has been about that aspect of it. And when I actually, and so I went into the movie expecting to actually have some reaction to that. And honestly, I don't know if the movie 
rectified some of the issues that people were talking about, or I just think that conversation is so stale and and five years ago that it's not even interesting anymore. Um, but I, I feel like I, I didn't even notice it. I felt like I was drawn to other things in the movie, and so I don't. I feel like the critical response to this um, has been, and I'll put links to all the. Um, articles i've been referencing here uh, obliquely here um but i'll put i think the critical response is about a conversation that we were having five years ago right and, and not necessarily about one that's going on right now and so i i was kind of i had a little bit of uh vertigo i guess uh, in watching this movie <laughs> after having read about it nathan i i, I imagine jordan and i are going to be a slightly different sides of this um because I can see the the gatekeeper issue and the problem with that. And the book, I mean, I, I, I bookmarked it here. Um, I mean, there's an entire page of, or actually it's two pages of just references from the 70s, 80s, and 90s about yes. geek culture that he has immersed himself in. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. The authors, the video games, the movies, uh, the music, everything that he has studied, every episode of television, and and in order to with the thought that in order to win this competition you have to be an expert in 70s 80s 90s nostalgia yeah. um that, that it's specifically built that way and and i didn't realize that in 2011 because that had not been an issue and that i mean this is the gatekeeping that that many people are talking about that there are different levels of fans and that the fans that know you know all of this stuff are inherently better than other fans and mm -hmm. I, and to be honest and we talked about this with the star wars episode yeah. i did that exist within the star wars universe and i considered myself one of those people at one time <laughs> and i i we call my you know a reformed fan a little bit because i now recognize <laughs> that that's a problem mm -hmm. um and, and it ex, is still ex-fangelical ex yeah evangelical yeah <laughs> um, and, and it is i just read an article and i meant to share it with you danny about uh comics gate where this is happening in the the online comics world where um people are attacking especially women creators and um trans creators and, and trying to diminish their power uh, within the comics world so it, it is still an ongoing issue that yeah. is very important that is very relevant um Ultimately, I, when I came back to read the novel for the third time, I really I wanted to attack it from a critical point of view. And for me, I, the the whether it's nostalgia or just I love adventure stories, and I I still think it's a well told adventure story. And I yeah. got lost in the adventure story of it. Mm -hmm. um, and ultimately, I feel like that nostalgia is serving an adventure story. And I think the movie does try to strip it away. Um, I, I've heard that the movie is tone deaf. I don't think that's true. I think, yeah. I think that that is people applying like all of this stuff doesn't exist in the film. There yeah. are references to it a little bit when he goes into the, um, Oh, I can't remember the one where the, uh, Oh, where they the the museum or whatever it's called yeah where with they, the curators yeah the, yeah. Yeah, the, the curator diaries or the archives or whatever yeah. Yeah, but even when they're in there most of that time is spent looking at archival footage of Halliday and his partner Moro they they don't spend a lot of time playing video games or looking at old TV shows um, and that's a pretty extensive in the book and mm -hmm. outside of The Shining instance a lot of that was stripped away yeah mm -hmm. and I will say even um, I, I I don't know. In IOI in the movie has this like army of pop culture experts to yeah. help them solve <laughs> the puzzle. Oologists. Yes. In is, the book. Is yeah. that, is that in the book? It is. Okay. Yeah. And well, what they look like in the movie though is largely, I mean, a, at least equal 
ratio of, of boys and girls, right? Um, and, and I wonder if the casting of that of that group had something to or was predicated on trying to solve some of the Gamergate issues about mm-hmm. men excluding women from geek culture. In fact, the 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 oologist who Mm -hmm. figures out that it must be the game adventure that they have to play the old old Atari game adventure is a a young woman right and I don't know Mm -hmm. if that's from the book or not but um, to me like the movie was making overtures to try and correct some of that um, kind of liberal backlash against um, the sexism associated with Gamergate uh, that Mm -hmm. attached itself somehow to that first book Um, and so yeah I when I watched the the movie i was utterly i felt like the voxes of the world were totally overreading um or or, or i think they were just i think that was kind of a uh i don't know there was a, an unprincipled sort of attack on the movie by attaching to it things that it weren't even there right and so yeah. i think just because they dared to remake this book that we have deemed verboten um we're going to trash the movie no matter what and so i when i went into the movie i actually ended up liking it i don't know that it's a movie i'll see many times in my life i mean yeah. watch it once with my kids now but um but yeah but i think that um um i i had no kind of negative reaction against the movie at all so um mm-hmm. uh, jordan do you have anything to add to that no, I, I actually agree with I, I think pretty much everything Nathan just said. Um, I mean, the the Gamergate is a little bit off my radar, like because I'm not really involved in in gaming anymore. And the, the games I used to play were like medieval Total War, you know, where it's just like me and my map moving my little knights around, you know. <laughs> yeah. So that that was not really, you know, the the Xbox Live era is not something that's really been part of my life. So that that's kind of whenever references to Gamergate pop up, I always have to kind of ask like, Oh now what was that again? Yeah. And the main thing I remember, I know from it now is it's, that's kind of when Milo Yiannopoulos sort of emerged yeah. from yeah. under his rock. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like to which I, he's, that, that's finally, the, he's submerged back into lately. Thank God. Yeah. yeah. Mercifully. Um, but yeah, the, 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 the gatekeeping thing is something that I thought, quite a bit about especially like it reminded me I, I remembered at some point in reading the book um i think when the two towers came out i was i would have been like a freshman in college and a, my best friend who was still in high school we went to go see it and we were waiting outside the theater and ran into some guy from his church and we were talking about tolkien and somehow or other i mentioned that i hadn't read all of the silmarillion or something and the guy's like oh man well you're not a real tolkien fan unless you've read the silmarillion and i was like <laughs> You know, I, you know, every subculture I, has this though. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's totally true yeah. though. And it's, yeah. um, this is what, what you get in ready player one is kind of a metastasized version of that. Yeah. And throughout the book, like, so, so I rock is a major character in the movie Yeah, and he's like this kind of, I, I actually really love TJ Miller's performance. Speaking mm-hmm. of persona non grata. Right. Yeah. I actually love TJ Miller's performance as I rock because that to me was like maybe the truest gaming character on there. This like scary badass looking like World of Warcraft dude who <laughs> sounds like a total pothead. Yeah. Um, and if I don't if I don't remember <laughs> totally. it later, the South Park episode about World of Warcraft is uh-huh. maybe my favorite video game <laughs> entertainment ever. Um, anyway, uh, so Irock is a major character in the movie. In the book, he basically shows up in like two or three scenes, and he's the guy who's there for the real gamers to trash mm. because he's a noob 
and he has dumb opinions about stuff and he doesn't he doesn't know every episode of different strokes or whatever you know <laughs> um so he's he shows up and he gets trashed and then he's the guy who kind of you know leaks uh i, I can't even remember what it was he, he leaks i think the location of the first gate or something okay um uh, and, and then he disappears from the book for the rest of the, the story. Uh, so that I, I like what they did with his character, kind of beefing him up and giving him something to do plot wise. Yeah. But that, um, that kind of neatly illustrates in the book that, you know, there are some people you can just dump on because they don't know what you know. Yeah. And it, that, that also gets to a point that annoyed me, which is I, I've run into people like this many times who value recall more than intelligence mm-hmm. the fact that they can like i say so, so for monty python and the holy grail i enjoy that movie on multiple levels uh and it's actually gotten funnier over the years as i've you know gotten my grad degree in medieval history and that kind of thing because now i see like the underlying stuff that they're poking at yeah and those guys i think david grubbs even mentions this on the main podcast at some point but those guys knew their medieval history and their oh, medieval yeah. literature. <laughs> yeah i mean it's they're like so steeped in it that they can just kind of casually throw these things off and it's there to be picked up on but it's not like really critical you know um that that thrown off level is what is the level at which ready player one exists yeah and I was, I was going somewhere else with that, and I've kind of lost track of my train of thought. My son's cutting teeth. Oh, I see. <laughs> <laughs> so you can see the, you know. Um, <laughs> the Mountain Dew, he's showing yeah, me. I'm, try, I'm trying to keep up mentally, but yeah. It, uh, well, the name dropping, the, right? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, the name dropping. So, so being able simply to recall yeah. bits of information without any sense of its meaning or quality. It's, it's the same kind of treatment that... Um, something that's annoyed me in movies for a while now is the way movies kind of sometimes treat particular, um, not disabilities, but mental conditions is almost like superpowers. Oh, sure. Yeah. All of you your, know, like, like, like goodwill hunting. Yeah. I mean, he can recall specific paragraphs of every, you know, like, you know, Gordon Woods history of the American revolution, <laughs> but, but you know, in real life that would just be white noise. Yeah. You know, because you'd have all this information, but, you know, intelligence is being able to put that together into something. Yeah. And so what you see privileged, I think, in stuff like Gamergate and the geek community now, rather than just enjoying a thing for itself on like kind of an intelligent level, is just consume as much of it as you possibly can and be able to like recall it lightning fast. Like I'm I'm getting ahead of myself again, though, because I wanted to bring up kind of the weird consumerism yeah of, of geek culture nowadays but we can we can put that off again until later yeah i don't know um push back against me <laughs> no no i i agree i think that um, and, and like i said all communities have this i remember you know being a music fan in the 90s I, i've said this i'm sure on the show before that it wasn't enough to be a fan of like husker do you had to also follow bob mould's uh sugar and then th- th- if you weren't a real fan unless you bought the bass player side project right you know and there's all this sort of uh um bona fides that you have to constantly yeah. sort of uh uh, perform right to be a part of this community um now uh and and this happens in academia i, I mean sure. i mean tell me that it doesn't happen at a conference right um right. as i've kind of gotten more you know uh versed in like leftist politics i mean the left is nothing but a circular firing squad of people um uh, like <laughs> shooting each other down uh, for not having read some diary entry of marx from the 1848 or something right and so uh yeah there's th- this happens 
to all communities. What was specifically notable, I think, about the Gamergate issue, and it's important to note that it, it I, I hope I didn't sound like I was dismissive of that as a controversy. That also included like really brutal online bullying. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so there was a, a lot of really nasty stuff that was associated with Gamergate, but it yeah. all is tied to this, um, sort of exclusionary kind of uh, this quest for distinction. You have to sort of, there's this kind of cultural capital that people exchange to rise within a community in terms of reputation, if nothing else. And, and Gamergate was a part of that. And people kind of brought this book into that. Now, I think the movie itself solved a lot of those problems, frankly, but yeah, I think it solved some of them. It's still there and it's still an, an issue. I, Again, I, I'm going to be a defender of the book, even though I understand all of those issues. The book still largely works for me. It didn't mm-hmm. bother me. And part of that's just my evolution as a, a human being, understanding my place in that and understanding my own privilege as a straight white male living in the 2000s. But I also understand what Klein and, you know, is trying to create with Halliday. Because in many ways, while I wasn't a, a computer genius, I see that, you know, as a, a socially awkward, you know, kid living in the 80s and 90s who doesn't know how to make friends and how even though, you know, it's it's easy for us as adults in our 30s or whatever to look back and say, okay, we had plenty of privilege as children in the 90s. But when you are living that as a teenager with all that teenage angst and you just know you don't know how to talk to girls right. and you don't have right. any friends and the football players are making fun of you because you know you're playing D&D or playing video games while they're out you know throwing a football it <laughs> there i think it's important to put white men in our place and our privilege and make sure we understand that but i think it's also potentially harmful to just immediately dismiss what generations of even the you know, geeks, even though now we are powerful and we have an online presence and that we, there's a responsibility with that. And yeah. we should learn to deal with that responsibility that now we are in charge. Um, but it's also really new. The geeks are not used to having that kind of power in pop culture. Um, and it's really only a, what, 10 to 15 year old phenomenon. Yeah. I'd say really 10 years or so where the geeks have really um, like it's now quote unquote cool to be a geek where the, and then the, the nostalgia of that geek culture, which I think this book taps into is now, you know, you see it in what Stephen King's it. We saw it in stranger things. We yeah. see it in, mm-hmm. um, like, I mean, it seems like everything that's coming out is what elevating that culture. Um, and a lot of that's because those people felt alienated at the time. And now they do have the power, but, but they're, they do have a responsibility now to try to reach out to those groups that have been alienated or continue to be alienated because they now have that power. And I think in many instances they haven't. So yeah. I, I, I don't like, I, I don't want to say this group is, Oh, woe is the, the geeky white man because yeah. the, that that's not fair, but it's also <laughs> not entirely fair for those kids that were root. I mean, the, the, the bullying that happens in it, for example, that, that really happens. It does. Yeah. And, and it, it the, those kids were, you know, menaced because I know that because I was one of them. Yeah. So I don't know. I I think it's a, it's a very tricky issue that, that many of the articles I've read, they just immediately dismiss, Oh, woe is the middle-aged white man and their privilege. And they're right. 
But that doesn't dismiss some, you know, a lot of really negative things that might have happened to them in their youth. That this, mm -hmm. and, and that's, I think, in some reason why geekdom created those gates because it was the only safe space they had, and yeah. it was the only power they did have. And and now that they have lots of power, they don't understand they have to start yeah. dismantling that. Well, and that's an internal contradiction with the whole like privilege um, discourse. I think. I mean, my own personal opinion here is that uh, the the idea of the the same people who are complaining against these safe spaces are arguing for safe spaces for other groups right mm -hmm. built mm -hmm. into that though is the possibility that those develop into the same sorts of gated uh, like vitriolic gated communities that the supposedly poisonous geek culture has as well right and so that's one of the um uh, i don't know i don't want to get too deep into that but um but yeah that 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 i feel like there's a limitation to the usefulness of this whole like privilege discourse right and, and i think you've hit on it beautifully right there nathan um and uh so one thing though uh i want to as you were talking maybe we could jump into politics and consumerism and stuff um for, at this point you brought up the 80s right um or the the fact that it's, you know, people who grew up in the 80s and now there is this moment that we've been talking about for some time about, you know, nostalgia for this. And I think you can even see the the new cycle of Star Wars movies as a kind of nostalgia for the 80s. I mean, who's, we're all getting geeked out by seeing Han Solo and Princess Leia on screen <laughs> again, right? Um, and mm -hmm. so I think even like the new stuff that isn't explicitly about the 80s is still speaking to a nostalgia for the 80s right and we talked about it before on the show and we've talked about stranger things on the show um and there is something about the 80s right now and this movie is not, not unabashedly mired in this right i mean it just it embraces the 80s as this kind of um ideal moment and on a previous episode when i talked about it in stranger things at a conference we had here at uh, mount aloysius um college uh the, the charity con so if you're interested in if you're local and you want to come to that next year plug yeah we'll, we'll have another one in october it's a lot of fun um but the uh uh one argument that i wanted to make though is why the 80s now, one option, I mean, one obvious material reason is that the people who grew up in the 80s are now the age to be creating, to having, exerting control over the culture and, and, and have the purchasing power to support this nostalgia habit, okay? Which is a bit of an opiate right now, I think, for, for our yeah. culture, okay? Um, and mm -hmm. so, um, th that's one reason. But I also, I don't want to discount the idea that the 80s are, is the moment when neoliberalism as a political philosophy uh, and an economic one took root. That's Thatcher and Reagan. And that's sort of the moment at which spun into being our world that we live in now. Like there's a clear transition politically from there at that point from which came before it, from that which came before it. And so um, I think that my reading of a part of the nostalgia for the 80s is this is a moment of the last moment of innocence that we can kind of revisit and maybe in our own minds at least correct some of the the places we went wrong as a society mm -hmm. right and so um i i think it's really interesting to consider that and that's like sort of one political um reading i have of that whole idea of nostalgia um now i think this movie is somewhat critical of nostalgia because i mean it unabashedly shows these stacks of trailers and and the poverty and and the 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 opening narration with wade at the beginning he even says well this is a time after people stopped trying to solve problems and they just right. you know lived in their virtual worlds and there, at some 
at a point to a point the the movie does try to critique this sort of you know lazy nostalgia even as it perpetuates mm-hmm. it <laughs> and so it's like mm-hmm. one of the really interesting things about it but i mean what kind of political uh or economic perhaps readings jordan maybe this is the time to talk about your consumerism which is also, oh, also gets ramped up in the 80s right yeah uh well you've given me like three big topics to, to that, that are just like swimming in my mind okay, let, me, let me hit one really quick i think you're onto something with the idea that if we can escape back to the 80s we can undo some of the stuff we've done since then Mm-hmm. I, I I don't know that most of the people I definitely don't think Ernest Klein is in that camp. I yeah. don't think he's that thoughtful, frankly. Uh, and I don't know that many of the people who are really on the nostalgia kick are thinking that deeply. But there's probably something to that, at least for some of the people who are really, really getting into the 80s. Um, and you can see this like uh, I haven't seen episode or uh, season two of Stranger Things yet, but all the trailers included a pretty prominent shot of a house with a Reagan Bush sign in the front yard. And I don't know if they actually do anything with that in the show, but uh, you know, that's, that's either a wink wink for the people who know better in the audience or a, you know, a little thumbs up for the people who would be voting Reagan Bush back then and still would today. Yeah. Um, So there's, there's at least a little acknowledgement of it there. Um, What that puts me in the mind of though, is a really interesting book called, hang on, let me look up the title. Uh, it's by a guy named Yuval Levine, uh, The Fractured Republic. Mm. Uh, I read this about a year, year and a half ago, um, and it is it is bone dry. Okay, so be prepared <laughs> to check it out. Like it was, it, I had to make myself finish it because it is like the most just bone dry, like back page of the Wall Street Journal level like reporting. But it is uh, really really interesting bipartisan look at kind of how our culture is disintegrating into factions yeah and you you kind of see that in this geek culture there's like the doctor who people and the you know the the anime people and the dungeons and dragons guys and the lord of the rings people and the game of thrones people and the consumerism that i see comes that comes in there is the to me deeply irritating push to kind of like mash all those together like, you know, little kids at the buffet, you know, like yeah. they put everything into their mashed potatoes and swirl it around. Yeah. And it's disgusting. Um, <laughs> I, I disagree. I've actually, <laughs> well, like they're trying to put all those things together and say, look, this is all geek. This is all for you, you know? And that goes back to what I said earlier about wanting to like enjoy a thing because of what it is. Yeah. So like, I really love Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings. I do not care about Dr. Who. Yeah. I don't want, you know, and, and liking the one does not entail that I must like the other. And the consumerism there I see, you know, or like, you know, I see cars on my commute that have, you know, like Frodo lives bumper stickers with a TARDIS and, you know, <laughs> the Star Trek Federation logo and, you know, like the Rebellion logo from Star Wars and all of them just like lined up on these back windows. And it reduces all of these really interesting and distinct stories to basically the same consumable commodity mm, yeah. which irritates me because you know I, I like most of those things to a varying degree but i like them because they're different from each other yeah and you know consumerism as we I, I think you've talked about at some point before you know consumerism eventually boils everything down to again just a bottom line mm-hmm. um and you know I, I don't know that well i don't know where to go with that that's just an observation i've been having i've been <laughs> I've been cooking up an essay in my mind called Against Geek Culture okay. based on the whole consumerist thing. 
But um, so Yuval Levine springs to mind when you mention that. And, and, and his contention, though, with this fracturing is that everybody politically is trying to get back to the 1950s. Uh, Republicans or conservatives want to get back to the 1950s because of its kind of social values and the prosperity. And liberals want to get back to the 1950s because of the kind of the gooder, gooder, the better conditions <laughs> for like the working class and the escalate, you know, the rise through the working class. The, and, the you know, New Deal the, consensus was still intact, sort of. Yes, yeah. yes. And being built upon even by people like Eisenhower. Yeah. So, you know, they're. Unless we forget, Nixon is the guy who started the EPA, you know, so that was still continuing into parts of the 70s. Um, so I think that's a really interesting and I think astute observation. But of course, what you're going to get out of that nostalgia is going to depend on your political point of view. And the same thing will be true when that transfers to the 80s. Um, right now, I think it's, you know, like a like a Pac-Man and shoulder pads nostalgia. Yeah. But when it gets to be political then it's going to be really, really different. Well, for your Tea um, Party types, it is already. I mean, Reagan, I mean, yeah. they've, they've made this mythological version of Reagan um, that, right. they, um, that really kind of defines a lot of conservative economic policy now. And it's based on a, yeah. it's based on a, like I said, like a, a comic book version of Reagan's ideas, mm-hmm. right? It's not even. Yeah, like, on both sides. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, you know, you see like, you know, you see people trot out even the term trickle down economics, which was never actually used by anybody's a term that was never actually used by anybody promoting what was nicknamed trickle down yeah. economics, you know, because that's not the way they conceived of it. That was a nasty nickname, kind of like Christian originally was. <laughs> so, you know, anyway, I've, I've hit on two of the big three things. So there's like the, the Yuval Levine, which just popped into my head and the consumerism. And that ties a little bit as well to this this other thing uh nathan gilmore on profiles several months ago now had an interview with patrick denine oh, about yeah. his new book uh why liberalism failed yeah and liberal in the lockean sense not the democratic sense right. uh, democratic party sense um that i felt was a really also rather dry but very astute kind of diagnosis of where we're at yeah. and um i mean the the ideal espoused to explicitly and implicitly in liberalism is of the autonomous individual who is free to make all the choices that they want with an absolute minimum level of interference from any like traditional institutions or the government or whatever. Um, and of course that gets inter- interpreted in myriad different ways, but the cultural impact of that has been to atomize human society yeah. or at least American society. So what you have left if you know your church membership doesn't matter and the family you're born into hardly matters, and I think it's notable that in both of Ernest Klein's novels, he has no real family structure yeah, at work. That is know? notable means, in this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His both of his parent, both of Wade Watts' parents are dead. He's living with a blood relative who he doesn't really care about and who has a nasty living boyfriend. Yeah, um, who is played by the guy who played uh, the Todd Packer character in the British Office, actually, oh. which was. <laughs> Um, and he was also, he was also in this really great movie that I I won't recommend but is really excellent called The Witch. Uh, oh, he's we this, saw like, pure, it. We we saw The Witch. That's great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah he's he's the yeah, dad. We watched it together. The, I'd, this, I'd like, recommend really that. That's good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was trying to place him, and I realized about two minutes before he died who he was. I, was I like, didn't oh, yeah. picture that. That's I didn't the, either. You're totally right. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but in Armada as well, he's living with his single mom, who he goes out of his way to describe as really hot, which uh, is kind of weird. That's weird. Uh, his dad is. <laughs> His dad is supposed to be dead, but has actually been like abducted by this government program that, you know, we won't get into. But even there again, it's just you've got this kind of like free floating individual and all they've got is escapism 
and again, this like consumerist checkbox list of what they belong to. Yeah. And that's where that gatekeeping comes in. Because yeah. if you don't have anything else, if you don't have you know, family or the church or even the government or any, anything like that, and all of those things have broken down pretty clearly in the world of Ready Player One, yeah. all you've got is making sure that you can quote the French knights from Monty Python and the Holy Grail word for word, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and oh. the atomization you're talking about is clearly demonstrated in those, again, those stacked up trailers. I mean, there's little yeah. cubicles that everybody lives in. Not, we, not only do we work in cubicles in the future, we actually live yeah. in them. Right. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. And notably as, as you get those like kind of crane shots moving around, that's yeah. introducing you to it with the exception of Wade's trailer uh, and the guy getting pizza. Yeah. So there's, there's, there's two exceptions. Um, and the guy getting pizza feels really out of place. Yeah. Um, especially because in the book, the stacks are described as being, being like really seedy and dangerous. Like Wade even at one point refers to trying to avoid getting raped or something. Yeah. Oh, like deliverance style. Go yeah. figure. But he uh, notably visually in the movie, as you get these crane shots around, everybody you see is alone. Yeah. In their trailer. Yeah. Even the lady doing. The She's pole pole dancing. Dance, <laughs> right. And, yeah. you know, we, we can have a whole separate conversation about the extremely negative culture surrounding that kind of real life activity, but at least it brings real human beings together for, for some purpose. You know, now you've got this lady clearly living in a fantasy version. Sorry. At least people would pull dance together. Right. You know, that would, <laughs> yeah, yeah that's maybe the dumbest thing I've ever said, but this is where it's taken me. So you get this lady clearly living out this like fantasy in which, you know, you know, without body shaming, probably her avatar doesn't look like she really did. Yeah. You know, and she's dancing for nobody. Right. Alone in this trailer. Yeah. Uh, which I think is a pretty clear, you know, so where the movie, I think, really seriously differs from the book in a very uplifting and I think good way is in the fact that Wade has to get outside himself, like at the halfway point of the movie and actually participate in this stuff with people in the flesh. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the, the, by the fact that Samantha's the one who gets kidnapped into indentured servitude, that makes him care about the actual real life fate of somebody else. It's not just a matter of, you know, leveling down and losing your coins. You know, this is a real person that, that, that needs to have something done for them. And I'll, I'm going too long. I'm sorry. I wanted to agree with Nathan, though. I do agree it works as an adventure story. The book does because as much as I'm whining, I finished, I finished it. I finished it in like three days. You know, it, it kept me turning pages as annoyed as I was getting, yeah. you know, uh, cause I've started other books since then that I did not finish, Yeah, which, you know, is something, something to be said. I don't yeah. know. Nathan, that, that, yeah, that's a lot, please. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I mean, this is a, it's a pop culture, um, popcorn read in the same way that the movie is a pop culture, popcorn flick. Right. Yeah. And, um, I've seen a lot of criticism online. It actually reminds me of some of the criticism that you and I talked about with Black Panther that, you know, this is not revolutionary enough. Yeah. And this is not trying to be, nor should it probably be where you're getting your revolution. Sure. Um, your revolutionary <laughs> politics, but something that is this, right. that's trying to, and, and you're right. It is the, the failings of the, the, capitalistic system in which it is trying to appeal yet it can't be revolutionary and appeal to you know a uh, hundred million people in the united states of america yeah. um well i mean nostalgia and revolution are diametrically opposed right one is forward looking one is backward looking so you can't do both right no. you're right Go but ahead. but the real is... revolution will smash all the things you want to yeah <laughs> enshrine you know nostalgically yeah but and, and so i think that's true but 
he does still have some ideas. And at the heart, this story is about a person who has to learn that he needs human contact. Yeah. And that's in the book and the movie. And it's a little heavy handed and it's definitely sentimental and it definitely feels Spielbergian. Yeah. But, <laughs> but that is ultimately the message of the book that they're trying to send that having an online only existence where your only interaction, whether it be positive or negative, with people that you can't actually touch and see and feel, even if you have a haptic suit that makes you feel it's not, <laughs> it's not real. And that the, the things that we should truly be valuing are the relationships that we build in real life. And I think that while, yeah, it's sappy and it's sentimental that in our increasingly online world of Facebook and Twitter, that's, that's still a, a good positive message. And I think that Klein, while he doesn't really explore that in detail, does see the future of what, I mean, reading it today, uh, you see a lot of allusions to what's going to happen in 2011, you know, like the increasing online presence, the dominance of these online corporations and their influence in our lives, the, you know, the Facebook stuff I know we've talked about. Yeah. Um, I've pointed out to you at one point, he talks about the meaningless of American elections because do you have that? (laughs) Yeah, I do. Queued up. You can read that Uh, passage. It's actually, it's kind of eerie almost. He's talking about the, uh, yeah, the elections both in the Oasis and in America. Um, the once great country into which I'd been born now resembled its former self in name only. It didn't matter who was in charge. Those people were rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic and everyone knew it. Besides, now that everyone could vote from home via the Oasis, the only people who could get elected were movie stars, reality TV personalities, or radical televangelists. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, holy cow. I mean, that's like, yeah. yeah. And and, I mean, he's not the first person to, you know, I, I, uh, if you've never read, um, uh, Transmetropolitan by Warren Ellis. Uh, he really explores a lot of these things much more thoughtfully yeah. than mm-hmm. uh, Ernest Klein does. I would highly recommend that book. Um, it's graphic novel. It's a comic book. But oh, okay. it's, it's very, very good. And he really explores kind of these ideas, but, you know, um, really thoughtfully. Uh, anyway, yeah, that's now I've lost train, my train of thought think, thinking about Warren Ellis. Yeah, no, but that's uh, I'll put that in the show notes. I'm trying to track down uh, the references you guys are throwing out and I'll try to I'm, have a sticky note here. Hopefully I'll remember to put these in the show notes. Um, but yeah, I think you, I think you're on to something there. And and I do feel like there is a confused like I don't Steven Spielberg's genius is not for, you know, profundity in the, in this kind in mm-hmm. this way. Right. His 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 great at tugging at your heartstrings right and, yeah. and telling inspirational kinds of stories um and uh and that's that's his genius right and i'm not i'm not even trying to diminish that i just think that's where his skill set lies and i actually want to say right. something about the importation of the shining here in a little bit but um but and so this movie has this really i think in, it, interesting setup right ioi this kind of evil corporation um has kind of taken over the government of the world, right? If it has its own kind of legal system where if you're not paying your debt, uh, your bills, they can buy your debt and put you basically in prison uh, where you're forced to work in the virtual world for them doing whatever they have you doing in the virtual world. And so there is this kind of dystopian political statement that it's making, right? The, the ending of the movie, though, is... I, I think when I was had uh, Chris Maverick on, um, we were talking about Black Panther. We talked about the the political ideology of Marvel movies being kind of like 
the illusion of choice uh, and you have basically a bad version of capitalism that is that is beaten out by a good version of capitalism so tony stark is just uh, a better version of obadiah stain kind of you know in <laughs> uh, in iron man and so uh in this movie it's the same thing um the oasis is like this hippie version of capitalism at the end okay so ioi doesn't own the world and they're not going to be pushing ads at everybody in their virtual reality world um but five kids do and they don't really do anything substantively to change the structure of the world that leads to those stacks of trailer parks right you know Mm -hmm. um uh, and so in the end it has this really way of setting up an interesting critique of politics and where we might be going and i think a a compelling you know vision of where we might be going but it doesn't actually offer a radical a radically different vision of what that might look like and so i think you're right this isn't the place to look for radical solutions to these big problems right because this is just sort of like trying to tweak the uh this is almost like arranging the chairs on the titanic right i mean Mm -hmm. uh politically speaking and so yeah i think that that was uh, a really kind of an interesting like political uh aspect to this uh to this movie jordan yeah that that brings to mind a, a similar movie i have not read the book this one's based on but the circle oh yeah uh, eggers i have not read the book i've heard the book is great um the the circle the, the movie though apparently changed the ending of the book pretty dramatically i don't know how the book ends but in the uh the movie you know it sets up kind of this very very plausible kind of like Google slash Facebook controlled world. Yeah. You know, and um, then it, the problem just goes away after Emma Watson, you know, kind of reveals some hidden documents and makes a speech that embarrasses Tom Hanks. Yeah. You know, and then, you know, and that's, there's a similar scene like that in the book, Ready Player One, where, where uh, Sorrento is making his offer to parts of all in, in this like chat. And, you know, the attitude seems to be kind of like, you know, you know, the youth can change the world just by posturing a certain way and kind of, you know, telling these bad guys to just F off and yeah. they won't know what to do with that. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> you know, and it, 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 it's got Ready Player One kind of has a similar problem in that it's sort of like, oh, now the right people are in charge. Yeah, exactly. But, but what happens when they're not? Well, and this is, I, I always get in fights with my wife about this kind of thing. She's like, she's much more pro corporation than I am. And, uh, and, uh, the, uh, but the whole idea of like diversifying boards of directors of corporations, I, I feel like that's the same thing. And so we're going to have women and people of color, you know, making, extracting profit and exploiting people instead of white men. You know, I mean, is that really better for us or does it just make us feel better about the system? Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's kind yeah, of, it's, it's an I'm starting to rant like now. We about. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> this is me ranting instead of you. Um, I, I, I know Nathan has to go teach a class uh, in a few minutes. And so I want to start like uh, pushing this towards a, conclu- a conclusion. One thing I did want to kind of bring up selfishly. Um, and I talked to Nathan a little bit about this last night after we watched the movie. Um, uh, Steven Spielberg is interesting as an artist and, and, and I feel like he has this weird, almost edible obsession with people like Stanley Kubrick. Right. And so that importation of the shining and his kind of revision of the shining, his whatever uh, imaginative work that he does with the shining in this movie um, it reminded me of what he did with AI. So he took over AI, which had been in development by Stanley Kubrick and people who watched that movie were kind of puzzled by it. And I really, I think, because it feels like it's 
both and neither nor um, mm-hmm. Stanley Kubrick and Steven Spielberg at the same time. So it exists as this really weird object to, to kind of look at. Um, but I feel like Steven Spielberg, and this is a little, maybe I'm psychoanalyzing somebody who, you know, doesn't even give a crap what I think, but, um, <laughs> but I feel like he has this sort of, uh, anxiety about the type of artist he is, right? And so mm-hmm. when he's adapting difficult work, um, like, like of Stanley Kubrick, um, I feel like he knows he's not that artist. Like Stanley Kubrick is an artist that, and I said this last night, transcends media, right? He's, he is like an artist on the level of Picasso and, and other uh, artists of other medium, right? Um, Steven Spielberg is a great artist in what he does, right? And I feel like he has this sense of, I really want it to be that, but I can't be, right? And so he keeps trying to sort of do this. And, and I was thinking of this initially when I, I taught Minority Report this semester for uh, my sci-fi film class. The, um, uh, the ending he tacks on to Philip K. Dick's story, who's another one of these difficult artists who like do things that are truly challenging and kind of transcend any given medium. Um, the, he sap, he slaps this sappy ending on minority. It's an ending that does not flow from the movie. Right. Um, but, and I feel like that's an indication of his inability to be that thing that deep down, I think he really wanted to be, but, but he's too good at being our like sentimental artist kind of, you know? And so I felt that's what I was thinking of when he was kind of sentimentalizing the shining. Uh, he, he was trying to like reach towards Stanley Kubrick again, uh, and unable to do so again. Uh, uh mm-hmm. do you have anything on that, Nathan? It's interesting. I, I, I told you this morning, I listened to, uh, the watch, uh, which is the ringers, one of the ringers podcasts. And, uh, um, they actually, talked about that very issue okay. uh, which i thought it was uh, funny since we were t- talked about it last night but uh i mean you can go listen to their podcast if you want the full argument there but one of the points they made about it was that uh andrew andy greenwald felt that that was that the, the the shining was the only time the movie truly to him felt joyous mm. because mm-hmm. the movie like the book is supposed to be about celebrating the people that ernest klein loved for, for better or worse, that's what he's doing. He's talking about and writing about the things that he loves, that he grew up loving. And Steven Spielberg, that's the only time in the movie he's doing that, mm, that he's yeah, writing about yeah. something or he's creating something and paying homage to something that he loves because everything else is stuff that he made. Yeah. And can you really <laughs> be nostalgic about the stuff that you created? And, and even if he did, wasn't directly involved with creating back to the future or whatever he created the culture that those things came out of absolutely and so uh, and and i said to you last night maybe it's a better movie because it it actually i think tamps down some of the nostalgia because it's steven spielberg whereas if it was made by a jj abrams oh my god you know or a or (laughs) another younger uh, an andy machete who did it you know like it would be nothing but nostalgia because that's who they are right now yeah um and so maybe it's better that it's Spielberg just I think that's maybe why it didn't have as much nostalgia as it could have but that one sequence is nostalgia for him it also is convenient that Warner Brothers who produced this movie owns the rights to The Shining sure that's um, where I was gonna go yeah. and, and actually I read another critique online about that that a lot of the things that give uh, are put forward um, just so happen to be Warner Brothers properties yep. um, which part of that's just the logistics of coordinating IPs but there is also potentially a slightly more insidious read of that as well. Yeah. Right. 
Um, Jordan, do you have anything to tack onto that? I was going to point out exactly the same thing, which is that, you know, Batman and all the other Batman characters in various iterations show up repeatedly. And those are all Warner Brothers properties. Yeah. And so is, you know, The Shining. But I, I, I think that's really perceptive that The Shining segment was my favorite part of the movie. Yeah. Because it was so brilliantly incorporated. And it was so funny. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was it, it had that joy, you know, and for Spielberg, nostalgia is the serial movies of the 40s and 50s. Like, you know, what I Indiana Jones, you know, and that those movies have that joy. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, yeah. I've, I've kind of lost my train of thought on it too, but that that's save, save me here. I, I, I need to jog my memory of exactly where I was going to go with that, but the, I'm not the, sure where you, but they, you talked about the joy. And I think that's one thing that yeah. for me, why the book works is it has that joy the, of that adventure that, that, does remind me of my favorite movies as a kid, the Raiders of the Lost Ark. And there is a lineage there that Spielberg is trying to do in The Goonies and in Raiders of the Lost Ark and, and the other Indiana Jones movies. And um, that I'm not sure this movie for me fully encapsulates. Um, it, it maybe it's a better movie because of it. I'm not sure. Um, but it just never quite felt as joyous um as those earlier movies of Spielberg's did. And mm-hmm. and maybe that's just the evolution of things. And maybe that's my own nostalgia getting in the way of me being objective too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, with- Spielberg is a really different filmmaker now from the guy who made Jaws true. and Raiders of the Lost Ark. I mean, he's a, not just a father, but a grandfather. Right. So, I mean, he's, I, I've seen it pointed out by many, many kind of online, online critics about his other movies that, you know, he, he pulls his punches more now. And this even extends to the things he made. Like there's the famous, you know, walkie talkies and ET, yeah. you know, where all the guns were replaced with walkie talkies and this like re-release version of it. So, I mean, he's, I, I think, I think that point about him tamping down some of the nostalgia, he, it, from what I understand, he didn't want to be self-referential Yeah. and Spielberg pops up a couple of times in the book, but basically the only hint of that you get is the T-Rex yeah, yeah. marauding downtown in the movie. And that's, almost immediately overwhelmed by, by King Kong, yeah. which is something that would be more of Spielberg's childhood. Yeah. Um, yeah so I, I, I think the movie is somewhat improved for that. And, and to your point, J.J. Uh, Abrams, it would have been just this nonstop reference parade <laughs> and might not have had, like, like the way Tribbles are randomly incorporated into the, his J.J. Abrams' <laughs> Star Trek movies, you know, and, and yeah. or you know, I think the way oh. I think the way Spielberg used the nostalgic <laughs> elements worked yeah. in the film because they're there. It's fun to spot. Like, annoyingly, I noticed the TARDIS in the back of H's workshop. You yeah, know, I did not that's see there. That. Yeah, that's there for the Hoovians. They can enjoy that. But, you know, that <laughs> they didn't call attention to it. They didn't waste time on it. Um, and I think that was streamlined and, and helped that way in addition to him bringing the maturity of a grandfather to the treatment of the relationships in the movie because uh, i don't guess we have time but i mean in the book artemis is pretty much the definition of the manic pixie dream girl mm-hmm. who's who's there to kind of be not tamed by wade but sort of affirmed by wade mm-hmm. because this is the one thing she lacks and he can give it to her you know yeah so yeah that would be probably a whole other episode on its own but it, it is i mean i think worth noting speaking to about speaking towards spielberg's evolution as an artist if you think about close encounters you have the, the main character of that movie basically just abandoning his family to go chasing the aliens right yeah. and mm-hmm. uh, and i can't imagine 
late Spielberg doing that. Like, I feel like that's only a movie that a, that a young single guy in Hollywood would do, right? You know what I mean? And, right. uh, and, and or only a, a narrative point. And so I, I do feel like he has, I mean, I mean, as we all do, hopefully, uh, you know, kind of grown up a little bit. So, mm-hmm. um, fellas, I, I, uh, want to thank you. This was a really, really fun conversation. I, uh, oh, yeah. I'm glad it was, it gave me an occasion to go see the movie. And, uh, yeah. and I enjoyed the movie. I like, did like too. I, said, you know? <laughs> I did too. It, it was, it was a fun time and uh and and we if you go see it please do uh i hopefully you've seen it before you've listened to a spoiler at all here but uh when you do go go see it uh and uh and have some comments please go to our uh facebook page and there'll be a link to this show notes on this face on the, the show notes for this episode on the facebook page leave us some comments there that's always fun to interact with the audience members at that forum and uh we also if you go to uh sectarianreviewpodcast.com you can find a lot of information about the show including old episodes and uh and by all means go do the itunes thing i haven't checked if there's new reviews up there or not but i'd appreciate it if you could uh, leave me a review for the show let me know what you like and don't like about it and uh uh uh, please do keep listening uh the next uh, couple of weeks we have an earth day special coming up i i did an interview with some folks from the story of stuff that will be released the week after this episode comes out and uh and so it was a really interesting uh meditation about consumerism from another angle so we're going out of pop culture straight back into <laughs> politics for one more episode and then and then we'll see where we go from there but uh uh jordan poss and uh uh nathan mcgee thank you so much for joining me for the episode another episode of the sectarian review podcast uh, i'm going to send you out with the uh, blind revelators once again and have a great day everybody Thank <laughs> you.